it's all about being bold. And I think that this is what's crucial, what determines a great architect of a great thinker. And she was both. At the end, our design speak for ourselves. She was someone who could literally take a sketch and turn it into concrete reality, which doesn't happen in today's world. There is always a developer having opinions on how we should think more in squares and 90 degrees. But at that time, there was a Hadid who said that there are 360 degrees. Why keep yourself to just one? Hello and welcome to the fourth and final episode of our special summer series on The Urbanist. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Over the past few weeks, we've been taking inspiration from the biggest names in architecture, city planning and design to uncover their legacies. This week, we focus on the late British Iraqi architect, artist and designer Zaha Hadid. So join us over the next 30 minutes as we zoom in on the intersection of art and architecture and see how the queen of the curve gained her crown. That's coming up right here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. Why is a curve so appealing to the eye? Whatever the reason, our attraction to twists and bends in the built environment is something that was deeply understood by the subject of today's episode. And the journey to get such amazing undulating structures such as the London Aquatic Centre and Hong Kong's Innovation Tower reaches far beyond the world of architecture. For anyone entering the field after Zaha Hadid, including our guy today, the architect Saeedi Sevint, it was impossible not to feel the impact and the legacy of this modern master. If you were a graduate entering into architecture around the year 2015, especially in India, if you said name one male architect, it would be Charles Kodia. And if you ask name a female architect, it would be Zaha Hadid. What really inspired me about Zaha Hadid was something related to her philosophy of how she worked, uh, how she was a female architect when it was known as a man's world. As female architect myself and everyone in the industry will be slightly inspired by the fact she was someone who could literally take a sketch and turn it into concrete reality, which doesn't happen in today's world. There is always a developer having opinions on how we should think more in squares and 90 degrees. But at that time, there was Zahadir who said that, you know, if there are 360 degrees, why keep yourself to just one? To get the full 360-degree view of Hadid's life, it's important to know where her inspiration came from and how it was nurtured. Zaha Hadid was born around 1950. She was born in Baghdad during the time when the government chose to modernise the city's architecture. Her childhood also saw the completion of very iconic buildings around Baghdad. So taking all this inspiration in, she also had a father who was a wealthy industrialist and a politician who contributed to this progress of these buildings. So we can say that Zaha Hadid was pretty much involved in this entire process because she was exposed to this kind of architecture from her birth. Her mother was an artist, so that brings the artistic quality in her. At the age of 11 is when she decided that her future was in architecture. She commenced her college studies at the American University in Beirut in the field of mathematics. 
and then moved to london to study architecture at the architectural association one of the finest schools in architecture and post her graduation she joined oma which is office of metropolitan architecture one of the again iconic firms in architectural industry the foremost influence of zaha hadid was the artist kazimir malvich she was also good friends with a lot of artists like brian clark and lord palumbo peter cook ram kulas elia bernard shumi were some of the people who recognized her talent in a very early age she was also friends with many high profile architects like frank gehry and norman foster so we can see that there was a lot of people who mentored zaha hadid a lot of friends pivotal friends who shaped her entire journey hadid's pursuit of the curved form is no doubt born of these relationships with the artists and contemporaries who became her peers but it also took some time for her groundbreaking designs to actually be realized the first building that managed to spring forth from the drawing board and be set in concrete was a fire station built in a factory complex for the furniture brand Vitra to find out more about this straight line design which began the portfolio of an architect known for drawing curves here's monocles jessica bridger everyone wants their first major project to be special in the case of zaha hadid vitra fire station was very special indeed and still is first let's talk about something called paper architecture paper architecture only exists on paper it's not built and maybe no one cares about it other than architects really good paper architecture is actually important to the discipline one of the things that architects and some other urbanists really like to discuss because it moves ideas forward way before built work does or can there are more sheets of paper in a room than there are truly visionary clients or even architects wealthy enough to build their own the wild the weird and wacky okay so that's paper architecture before vitra fire station was completed in 1993 zaha was known mostly as a paper architect for two decades by the 1990s her powerful drawings and paintings were well known and much admired in the right circles planes riding cascading and folding in space surfaces active exploding the idea of forms so sublime that when people compare her work to sculpture i often think they're missing the point the scale is awesome the vitra fire station is on the campus of the design company vitra in weil am rhein germany directly on the border with basel switzerland Following a horrific fire in the 1980s, during which nearly half of Vitra's campus burned down in a single night, the company sought to rebuild in high style. Buildings were commissioned from Frank Gehry to Da Ando and more illustrious architects. This started a high architecture cavalcade on the Vitra campus that grows even to this day. Of course, one of the buildings had to be a dedicated fire station. Choosing Zaha to build it who had not yet built a single significant structure operating at the leading edge of deconstructivist design was an act of faith that maybe only a design company could make the long linear building is made from poured in place concrete the formwork visible and most of the surfaces left raw it is a building of planes translated from her drawings there's collision tilt rise and fall 
seemingly torquing and twisting while never really bending or curving at all. Some of the planes are walls, some roofs, and rarely is there a boring angle. From above, the building looks like the force of tectonic plates brought to a landscape scale from their elemental crash of powers. The fire station was designed to house fire trucks and service spaces for the firefighters, including a break room and changing area, spread over two floors with ample light flooding in. A canopy over the garage opening is a violently jagged shape. It emerges from the building with support from a grouping of thin metal columns. They form a rather undisciplined brigade of structural reinforcement as they actively fight against the idea of 90-degree angles being the only reasonable answer to questions of statics. This is not a reasonable building. However, it is super functional, and while it did not serve as a fire station for long, it served well and does its new duty as an exhibition space admirably. But only Zaha could have built such a thing in the 1990s, convinced even an open client like Vitra to agree, all based on drawings which look, frankly, insane, menacing, and utterly appealing. Her paper architecture would go on as a foundation to build Zaha Hadid Architects into a world-class international firm over the following decades. Vitra Fire Station and the drawings for it still inspire architects and urbanists even today. Bold is bold, and Zaha was irrefutably, insistently Zaha, then, now, and forever. Art and architecture have always been disciplines that are intertwined, and it was precisely this combination that became one of the defining characteristics of Zaha Hadid's career. Zaha Hadid, throughout her entire professional practice, practiced painting as one of the former steps. It was always about abstraction turning into something concrete. It was never the plan coming first. It was always the painting, the artwork. That was the foremost process. She also made a lot of topographical studies because most of her designs were very challenging in terms of how its orientation and climate would work around it. So she did a lot of topographical studies through her artworks as well to kind of show how fluid the forms are, how flexible it is, sort of taking a very dynamic 360 degree approach of looking at design rather than going from plan to elevation to section. It's perhaps this artistic approach that's at the centre of the famous sweeping, rolling and flowing designs that have made Hadid such a recognisable figure in the contemporary architectural world. The question remains, though, why do our brains react so fondly to cities where the streets wind and the facades bend? There are some research that show that uh, most people prefer organic forms more than rectangular forms or straight forms. Some other studies show that people feel tendentially a little bit less stressed in such environments than in environments where very many sharp forms are existing. But we have to be careful. Whether people feel stressed or not depends on very many different aspects, but the shape is one of them. That's Harold Deinsberger Deinsweger, an expert in the field of architectural psychology. The possible explanation for that is that we have preference for natural environments. And curved shapes, or curved forms, are a little bit more like natural forms than the rectangular or the straight lines. This perception of nature produces feelings of relaxation, 
this is the main reason why we usually prefer natural environments or might prefer also environments or rooms with curvy shapes. People just feel a little bit less stressed. These curved shapes in the built environment tap into some particular criteria that the human brain naturally prefers. I would like to mention the research work of Stephen and Rachel Kaplan. In their main research work, they tried to find out some principles which explain which built or natural environments people prefer usually and why. And therefore, also affect their mood. So mood always comes second or third. There are some levels in between which we have to capture to find out how the whole settlement, the environment would affect the mood of people. So the main criteria for an environment from their perspective are legibility or making sense. This represents the need to understand the environment, to comprehend it cognitively so that we understand what is going on there, what can I do there, what is meant for. This is one basic need. The other term is involvement. And this contains everything that leads us to use it, that motivates us to stay there, to walk there, or at least to become part of the setting. So this is the second key term, involving. And involving consists of two main aspects. One aspect is complexity, and the other is mystery. Complexity means, in this case, when a setting is interesting at first sight, the opposite of monotony and mystery is when a setting invites us to discover it. It leads us to go on further there and to perceive. So these two aspects, complexity and mystery, are those main criteria which are responsible for this term involvement and straight lines are much less likely to fulfill these aspects, these main criteria. So curved lines or organic lines are more likely to be able to fulfill these aspects of mystery and complexity and therefore also influence our preferences. There are always exceptions, but usually it's easier to create attractive environments by using organic forms. And when we look at some of Zaha Hadid's famed organic structures, such as the London Aquatic Centre or Beijing's Galaxy Soho, we can see these aspects of complexity and mystery firsthand. It's very likely that these patterns are also enhancing the aspects of mystery and complexity. They are also probably enhancing the attractivity of the surrounding in general, not only the building itself, but also of the surrounding. This influences always connection with the environment. Never analyze the influence of a building alone, but taking the surrounding aspects, the surrounding area, the environment into account. So it is very likely also enhancing the attractivity of the surrounding in general, of the whole environment. The aspects of involvement are very much likely to grow in these environments. So this is valid for visitors as well as residents. So it may be more likely that they walk through or stay there for a while because of using these round shapes or curved shapes. And there's another aspect concerning the residential buildings. Residents also may develop a stronger place attachment, as we call it in environmental psychology. Place attachment means that you feel emotionally related to the place, that you feel home in a certain way. 
Many of the organic structures that we see today all over the world have been made possible mostly due to the integration of software into the architecture industry. Software continues to push things forward today as the use of artificial intelligence grows in this field. To find out more about what is being made possible by computers, we spoke to Jan Sujic, PhD in architecture and founder of Outline AI, a startup which is developing automated design processes in architecture. The use of the software since the technological revolution in the 1990s has significantly impacted the way we design buildings. Mainly because there is a huge change for trying to visualize ourselves how the building would look like and actually see it in the process. This would impact not only the final outcome, that is more of the process output, but it would also give architects and their clients, of course, the freedom to decide where they want to head with the project. Moreover, in terms of just the architectural craft, there are less limits. In the past, when you thought about the building that was supposed to have double curvature layer, you would have to know precisely the mathematics, the geometrics of this, and then you will be still limited with what you could actually define by some curves. Now, you can just play with it, see how it looks from different perspective. It brings so much new knowledge to the table. Moreover, what we are experiencing now, I think, is is going to be named in the future as the second technological revolution. Because we are facing the dilemma, uh, what is the role of the architect in the process? Because we always thought that we are here to craft. So we are here to draw series of drawings. But now we can use tools that help us design. It's not automated like some people used to say at the beginning of the era of computers and architecture, that computer draw it. It does not happen. We draw it, we decide how it looks like. Even if we program the software, we define what is the general purpose. If you, for example, do some optimizations, you need to know what are the objectives at the end. It's good to know that AI doesn't stand to entirely replace the architect, but it will surely change the way new professionals view the industry and ultimately influence their work. This would impact the entire generations of architects because the youngsters that will start now they will see the process completely differently. It was like I remember when I started. For me, 3D was basic. I couldn't imagine designing a building without 3D. I do not think two-dimensionally. I wouldn't go back. And now they're going to see that you could automate it and just see 25 segments, layers for a floor, and they will say, oh my God, why should I draw it if it's just basic knowledge? It's about for me to pick, to maybe modify it a little bit at the end, because not always computer gives you the right outputs. Sometimes there are bugs, like each software that you use. When you see it as a human being, you just know precisely what do you want to achieve at the end. This is, I think, huge. So while computers may have made certain parts of the job easier, it's important to remember that at the end of the day, if a computer can do it, so can a human. The hand-drawn design of the famous Sydney Opera House goes to show that these sorts of curving creations have and will always be possible, even without digital assistance. If you look at the marvelous design of John Woodson in Sydney, this is a building that was impossible to design. You wouldn't imagine like those drawings that were handcrafted for this building and someone needed to read it, understood it. It was so complex and it took so much more time, so much more money to design it. But at the end, it became a landmark of the country. 
And the same, I think, goes for Zaha Hadid, because when you look at her first drawing, what she started working with, this was all a kind of impossible architecture. I remember a speech that I had the pleasure to attend when she talked with Lebu Suits and was explaining this paradigm shift. And she was saying that it's all about being bold, about taking this move towards this decision. And I think that this is what's crucial, what determines a great architect of a great thinker. And she was both. At the end, our designs speak for ourselves. And this is the other part with Zaha, because even if she didn't publish a lot, she had the bravery to just do it, to see how it would look like and how the building would accommodate the surroundings. The further we go with Zaha, then the more we know how the technology changed her. For example, in Guangzhou, there is a beautiful opera. The opera stays in front of the mad building. So there is mad building, this huge tower, and then there is the Zaha with those smooth lines. It is so welcoming. People spend time there. You could see a lot of people spend time in front of the building, not in the park that it is facing. And this was something unusual because she provided shadows through her openings. And there were no shadows in the park. Imagine being in Guangzhou, 35 degrees, no shadow at all, only small trees in the middle. And then she had those big shadows so people would hide underneath them. And when you approach this building, it consists of two forms. And both of these forms, they do a kind of dialogue one between another. But with the surroundings, with all the landscape that was designed as well, they tend to incorporate the outside. They are so clear in the way you approach them. When you are inside, you already know where to move, how this building will work. Even though at first you may be a little bit confused because of the number of entrances. But when you enter the building, everything is clear. At the end, as a whole, this is just perfect. You want to look at it, it gives you a very nice impression, and you want to spend time there. And I think this is what a good quality building stands for. If you want to spend time in the building without any purposes, that is what says that the building is great. But getting back to the software, I think that the coding process, the understanding of different elements, the automation, this is something that made it all possible. Without that, you wouldn't get this kind of quality of detail, this complex environments. And if you look at the recent bridge that the Zaha Hadid office designed, this is just perfect. Like this is a up-to-date technology and it shows that this is the direction to go. And this is the kind of architecture the one wants to follow that whenever there's a building designed by the office, people want to see how it looks like. This is a lifetime achievement, I think. Zaha Hadid died in 2016, but her legacy lives on in her work, both in the built environment and on the page. She's also survived by her namesake studio, Zaha Hadid Architects. Patrick Schumacher is the principal leading the firm since Zaha's passing and therefore responsible for ensuring her legacy continues to play a role in the future work of the studio. It plays a large role still and has during Zaha's lifetime as well. So we had built over the years this internal repertoire also of many, many ideas and unbuilt competitions, which became a resource for every new design. We had thought about different conditions, different programs, different sites, different ideas. I mean, of course, we also source from 
the whole field and discipline as well as outside the field and discipline. But increasingly, we also sourced from the internal oeuvre of the company. And this has been quite large as the company has been growing. And during Zaha's lifetimes, particularly in the 2000s, we've been growing quite rapidly. For instance, initially when I started, it was four or five people in the late 80s. Most of the 90s, we didn't grow much. It became, you know, 20, 25 sometimes. But then in the early 2000s, we've been growing from 20, 30, 40 into 400, 450. So Zaha has experienced this large company for eight years. So that means you have so many designers generating so much work. So that is a legacy. And the of course, it evolved as well. We, we absorbed new influences from younger architects in particular. So Zaha used to be the youngest of the group of deconstructorists and then we became the most mature and maybe the oldest of the group of parametricists and we developed new tools. But there's also a very strong red thread with respect to the search for complexity of embedding complex compositions into existing urban conditions to create these intricate nested compositions in a sense of embeddedness and using curvature to maintain legibility in the face of complexity. These kind of ideas stay with us and then there's a resource of many different ways of applying such ideas in different conditions. It's a very happy legacy and we also the legacy is also in the people. Zaha Hadid Architects' legacy, of course, extends into the built environment too. So how do they hope the projects will be remembered, especially in comparison to others built during a period where glamour and spectacle was so commonplace? I don't think it's a kind of kitsch spectacle, which sometimes then happened in that period. There were a lot of epigons and particularly also in the Middle East, highly problematic projects. And I think our projects are different. Our projects will be um, recognized. They have also an artistic legacy. So in terms of the history of architecture, they're very original. And But also, as we matured, we're more and more looking at the particular project and what it does to the city, to the site, to the client. No, it's not just a manifesto, which could be anywhere and, and just shows that there's a new style in architecture, like, for instance, the Vitra fire station. Nobody cares about a fire station of some kind of factory complex. It was also a manifesto. So a lot of early projects had that quality. And we used the site, the client's money, as a vehicle. And, of course, this has shifted. There's always an element of innovation and using a project, but the balance has shifted very much more, of course, particularly if you have large investments, large projects. We are much more conscientiously delivering to the legacy, not only of the history of architecture, but the history of those places or the cultural life. And so these really, we're proud if they're functioning well in the city. Zaha Hadid's personality was often used against her in the media. She had strong opinions and was a blunt communicator, resulting in her frequently being branded as a diva. However, as Hadid herself pointed out, a label like diva would rarely be aimed at her male counterparts. Hadid's work saw her success overshadow the challenge of being a woman in the field, and in 2004, she was the first woman to receive the Pritzker Prize in Architecture, and her defiant triumph inspired architects throughout her career and beyond. Here's Siley Savant again. I feel that one of her biggest notable contributions would be her being herself, her resilient self, being very true to her beliefs and converting every idea into concrete reality, teaching everyone that your imagination could run wild and it still can happen. And at the same time, leaving such a big legacy and working in a time when architecture was a man's world. So that dedication to her craft, being really inspired in her craft and just 
seeing that her work becomes into a concrete reality and i think she has paved way to a lot of women architects to get into leadership roles it inspires women architects all over the world to be more in the leadership roles rather than just working in firms so i think that is one of her notable intangible legacy i would say for hadid it seemed to be less about working to be accepted as a woman in architecture and more about striving to produce work that she truly believed in and that ultimately improved the surrounding environment and in the end success turned out to be the best response to her critics to be accepted as a, an architect nothing is i'm not sure it's fully done not here not in this country i'm still considered to be on the margin you know despite all these things and i don't mind being on the edge actually it's a good place to be and that's all for this final episode of our special summer series here on the urbanist my thanks to sylee savint jessica bridger harold dinesberger dinesweger jan sujik and Patrick Schumacher for joining us on the show today. This programme was produced by Carlotta Ribello and David Stevens, and David also edited the show. If you haven't already, do catch up with the entire series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or monocle.com and subscribe to ensure that you never miss an episode. And to play you out this week, here's one of Zaha Hadid's personal favourites, a selection from her appearance on the BBC's Desert Island Discs, it's Brian Ferry with These Foolish Things. Thank you for listening, city lovers. The winds of March that make my heart a dancer A telephone that rings but